Chapter 17 Though the Mob Kill Us When violence erupted in the streets of Independence, William McClellan fled his home and hid in the woods, terrified of the mobs. After destroying the church's printing office, the people of Jackson County had ransacked Sidney Gilbert's store and driven many saints from their homes. Some men had been captured and whipped until they bled. Hoping to avoid their fate, William stayed in the woods for days. When he learned that a mob was offering a cash reward to anyone who captured him or other prominent church members, he slipped away to the Whitmer family settlement along the Big Blue River, several miles to the west, and kept out of sight. Alone and afraid, William was racked with doubts. He had come to independence believing the Book of Mormon was the word of God, but now he had a price on his head. What would happen if a mob found him? Could he stand by his testimony of the Book of Mormon then? Could he declare his faith in the restored gospel? Was he willing to suffer and die for it? As William agonized over these questions, he met David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery in the woods. Even though there was a reward out for Oliver too, the men had reason to believe the worst had passed. The people of Independence were still determined to drive the saints out of the county, but the attacks had stopped and some church members were returning to their homes. Looking for reassurance, William turned to his friends. I have never seen an open vision in my life, he told them, but you men say you have. He had to know the truth. Tell me, in the fear of God, he demanded, is that Book of Mormon true? Oliver looked at William. God sent his holy angel to declare the truth of the translation of it to us, and therefore we know, he said. And though the mob kill us, yet we must die declaring its truth. Oliver has told you the solemn truth, David said. I most truly declare to you its truth. I believe you, William said. On August 6, 1833, before Joseph learned the extent of the violence in Missouri, he received a revelation about the persecution in Zion. The Lord told the saints not to fear. He had heard and recorded their prayers, and he promised with a covenant to answer them. All things wherewith you have been afflicted, the Lord assured the saints, shall work together for your good. Three days later, Oliver arrived in Kirtland with a full report of the attacks in Missouri. To quiet the mobs, Edward Partridge and other church leaders had signed a pledge, promising the people of independence that the saints would leave Jackson County by the spring. None of them wanted to abandon Zion, but refusing to sign the pledge would have only put the saints in more peril. Horrified by the violence, Joseph approved of the decision to evacuate. The next day, Oliver wrote church leaders in Missouri, instructing them to look for another place to settle. Be wise in your selection, he advised. Another place of beginning will be no injury to Zion in the end. If I were with you, I should take an active part in your sufferings, Joseph added at the end of the letter. My spirit would not let me forsake you. Afterward, Joseph remained shaken for days. The terrible news had come while he was facing intense criticism in Kirtland. That summer, a church member named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut had been excommunicated for immoral behavior while on a mission. Soon, Hurlbut had started speaking out against Joseph at well attended meetings and collecting money from critics of the church. With this money, Hurlbut planned to travel to New York to look for stories he could use to embarrass the church. 
As pressing as the problems in Ohio were, however, Joseph knew the situation in Missouri needed his full attention. Reflecting on the violence, Joseph realized that the Lord had neither revoked his command to build Zion in independence nor authorized the saints to give up their land in Jackson County. If they abandoned their property now or sold it to their enemies, getting it back would be nearly impossible. Desperate to receive specific directions for the Missouri saints, Joseph prayed to the Lord. What more dost thou require at their hands, he asked, before thou wilt come and save them? He waited for an answer, but the Lord gave him no new instructions for Zion. On August 18th, Joseph wrote personally to Edward and other leaders in Zion. I know not what to say to you, he admitted. He had sent them a copy of the August 6th revelation, and he assured them that God would deliver them from danger. I have his immutable covenant that this shall be the case, Joseph testified. But God is pleased to keep it from mine eyes the means how exactly the thing will be done. In the meantime, Joseph urged, the saints should trust in the promises the Lord had already given them. He counseled the saints to be patient, rebuild the printing office and store, and seek legal ways to recover their losses. He also implored them not to abandon the promised land, and he sent them a more detailed plan for the city. It is the will of the Lord, he wrote, that not one foot of land purchased should be given to the enemies of God or sold to them. Joseph's letter reached Edward in early September, and the bishop agreed that the saints should not sell their property in Jackson County. Although mob leaders had threatened to harm the saints if they tried to seek compensation for their losses, he collected accounts of the abuses the saints had endured that summer and sent them to Missouri's governor, Daniel Dunklin. Privately, Governor Dunklin had contempt for the saints, but he encouraged them to take their grievances to the courts. Ours is a government of laws, he told them. If the court system in Jackson County failed to execute the law peacefully, the saints could notify him and he would step in to help. Until then, however, he recommended they trust in the laws of the land. The governor's letter gave Edward and the saints hope. They began to rebuild their community, and Edward and other church leaders in Zion hired lawyers from a neighboring county to take their case. They resolved that they would defend themselves and their property if they were attacked. Town leaders in independence were furious. On October 26th, a group of more than 50 residents voted to force the saints from Jackson County as soon as they could. Five days later, at sunset, saints in the Whitmer settlement learned that armed men from independence were headed in their direction. Lydia Whiting and her husband William fled their home and took their two-year-old son and newborn twins to a house where other church members were gathering to defend themselves. At ten o'clock that night, Lydia heard a commotion outside. The men from Independence had arrived and were tearing down cabins. They spread out through the settlement, throwing stones through windows and breaking down doors. Men climbed on top of houses and tore away the roofs. Others drove families from their homes with clubs. Lydia heard the mob coming closer. A short distance away, they broke open the door of Peter and Mary Whitmer's house, where many church members had taken cover. Screams broke out as men with clubs forced their way into the house. The women scrambled to reach their children and begged their attackers for mercy. The mob drove the men outside and beat them with clubs and whips. In the house where Lydia was hiding, fear and confusion gripped the saints. 
With few firearms and no plan to defend themselves, some people panicked and fled, racing for cover in the nearby woods. Afraid for her family, Lydia handed her twins to two girls huddled beside her and sent them running for safety. She then scooped up her son and followed after them. Outside was chaos. Women and children darted past her as the mob pulled down more houses and toppled chimneys. Men lay slumped on the ground, badly beaten and bleeding. Lydia clutched her son to her chest and ran for the woods, losing sight of her husband and the girls who carried her babies. When she reached the cover of the trees, Lydia could find only one of her twins. She took the baby and sat down with her toddler, shivering in the autumn cold. From their hiding place, they could hear the mob tearing down their house. As a long night passed, she had no idea if her husband had made it out of the settlement. In the morning, Lydia stepped cautiously out of the woods and looked for her husband and missing baby among the bleary-eyed saints in the settlement. To her relief, the baby was unharmed and William had not been caught by the mob. Elsewhere in the settlement, other families were reunited. No one had been killed in the attack, but nearly a dozen homes had been leveled. For the rest of the day, the saints picked through the rubble, trying to salvage what remained of their property and cared for the wounded. Over the next four days, Zion's leaders told the saints to gather in large groups to defend themselves against attacks. Mobs from independence rode throughout the countryside, terrorizing outlying settlements. Church leaders begged a local judge to stop the mobs, but he ignored them. The people of Jackson County were determined to drive every last saint from their midst. Soon, the mobs struck the Whitmer settlement again, this time with more intensity. When 27-year-old Philo Dibble heard gunfire in the direction of the settlement, he and other saints nearby rushed to its defense. They found fifty armed men on horseback, trampling through cornfields and scattering the frightened saints into the woods. Catching sight of Philo and his company, the mob fired their guns, mortally wounding one man. The saints fired back in force, killing two of their attackers and dispersing the rest. Smoke from their black powder guns filled the air. As the mob scattered, Philo felt a pain in his abdomen. Looking down, he saw that his clothes were torn and bloody. He had been hit by a lead ball and buckshot. Still clutching his gun and powder, he staggered back toward home. Along the way, he saw women and children huddled in wrecked houses, hiding from mobs that threatened to kill anyone who helped the wounded. Faint and thirsty, Philo stumbled on until he came to the house where his family was hiding. Cecilia, his wife, saw his wound and took off into the woods, frantic to find help. She lost her way and found no one. When she returned to the house, she said that most of the saints had fled three miles away to the settlement where the Colesville saints lived. Other saints were scattered across the countryside, hiding in cornfields or wandering the endless prairie. As the saints battled mobs along the Big Blue River, Sidney Gilbert stood before a judge in the Independence Courthouse along with Isaac Morley, John Corll, William McClellan, and a few other saints. The men had been arrested after a man they had caught looting Sidney's store had charged them with assault and false imprisonment when they tried to have him arrested. The courtroom was full as the judge heard their case. With the whole town in an uproar over the saints' decision to defend their rights and property, Sidney and his friends had little reason to hope they would get a fair hearing. The trial felt like a sham. 
While the judge listened to testimonies, false rumors reached independence that the saints had slaughtered twenty Missourians at the Big Blue River. Anger and confusion filled the courtroom as the spectators cried out to lynch the prisoners. Unwilling to turn them over to a mob, one of the court clerks ordered the men back to the jail for protection before the crowd could murder them. That night, after the outrage had cooled, William stayed behind in the jail while the sheriff and two deputies escorted Sidney, Isaac, and John to a meeting with Edward Partridge. The church leaders discussed their options. They knew they had to get out of Jackson County quickly, but they hated to leave their land and homes in the hands of their enemies. In the end, they decided it was better to lose their property than their lives. They had to abandon Zion. Their discussion finished at two o'clock in the morning, and the sheriff led the prisoners back to jail. When they arrived, a half-dozen armed men were waiting for them. "'Don't fire! Don't fire!' the sheriff called out when he saw the mob. The men leveled their guns at the prisoners, and John and Isaac bolted. Some of the mob fired after them and missed. Sidney stood his ground as two other men came up to him and aimed their guns at his chest. Bracing himself, Sidney heard the hammers snap and saw a flash of gunpowder. Stunned, he searched his body for wounds but found that he was uninjured. One of the guns had broken and the other had misfired. The sheriff and his deputies hurried him off to the safety of the jail cell. Much of Jackson County was now mobilizing for battle. Messengers canvassed the countryside, enlisting armed men to help drive the saints from the area. A church member named Lyman White, meanwhile, led a company of 100 saints, some armed with guns and others with clubs, toward independence to rescue the prisoners. To prevent more bloodshed, Edward began to prepare the saints to leave the county. The sheriff set the prisoners free, and Lyman disbanded his company. The county militia was called out to keep order as the saints left their homes, but since most of the men in the militia had been part of the attacks on the settlements, they did little to prevent more violence. There was nothing the saints could do now but run. On November 6th, William Phelps wrote to church leaders in Kirtland. It is a horrid time, he told them. Men, women, and children are fleeing, or preparing to, in all directions. Most of the saints trudged north, ferrying across the frigid Missouri River into neighboring Clay County, where scattered family members found each other. Wind and rain beat against them, and soon snow began to fall. Once the saints crossed the river, Edward and other leaders set up tents and built rough log shelters to shield them from the elements. Too injured to flee, Philo Dibble languished in his house near the Whitmer settlement. A doctor told him he would die, but he clung to life. Before David Whitmer headed north, he sent word to Philo promising him he would live. Newell Knight then came, sat beside his bed, and silently placed his hand on Philo's head. Philo felt the Spirit of the Lord rest over him. As the feeling spread through his body, he knew that he would be healed. He stood up, and his wounds discharged blood and ragged bits of cloth. He then got dressed and went outside for the first time since the battle. Overhead, he saw countless shooting stars streak across the night sky. At the camp along the Missouri River, saints emerged from their tents and hovels to see the meteor shower. Edward and his daughter Emily watched with delight as stars seemed to cascade around them like a heavy summer rain. To Emily, it was as if God had sent the lights to cheer the saints in their afflictions. Her father believed they were tokens of God's presence, 
a reason to rejoice amid so much tribulation. In Kirtland, a knock at the door woke the prophet. Brother Joseph, he heard a voice say, come get up and see the signs in the heaven. Joseph got up and looked outside, and he saw the meteors falling from the sky like hailstones. How marvelous are thy works, O Lord, he exclaimed, remembering New Testament prophecies about stars falling from the heavens before the second coming, when the Savior would return and reign a thousand years in peace. I thank thee for thy mercy unto me, thy servant, he prayed. O Lord, save me in thy kingdom. Chapter 18 The Camp of Israel For days following the meteor shower, Joseph expected something miraculous to happen, but life continued as normal, and no other signs appeared in the heavens. My heart is somewhat sorrowful, he confided in his journal. More than three months had passed since the Lord had revealed anything for the saints in Zion, and Joseph still did not know how to help them. The heavens seemed closed. Adding to Joseph's anxiety, Dr. Philastus Hurlbut had recently returned from Palmyra and Manchester with stories, some false, others exaggerated, about Joseph's early life. As the stories spread around Kirtland, Hurlbut also swore he would wash his hands in Joseph's blood. The prophets soon began using bodyguards. On November 25, 1833, a little more than a week after the meteor shower, Orson Hyde arrived in Kirtland and reported on the saint's expulsion from Jackson County. The news was harrowing. Joseph did not understand why God had let the saints suffer and lose the promised land, nor could he foresee Zion's future. He prayed for guidance, but the Lord simply said to be still and trust in him. Joseph wrote Edward Partridge immediately, I know that Zion in the own due time of the Lord will be redeemed, he testified, but how many will be the days of her purification, tribulation, and affliction the Lord has kept hid from my eyes? With little else to offer, Joseph tried to comfort his friends in Missouri, despite the 800 miles between them. When we learn of your sufferings, it awakens every sympathy of our hearts, he wrote. May God grant that notwithstanding your great afflictions and sufferings, there may not anything separate us from the love of Christ. Joseph continued to pray, and in December he finally received a revelation for the saints in Zion. The Lord declared that they had been afflicted for their sins, but he had compassion on them and promised they would not be forsaken. They must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, he explained to Joseph. For all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. As he had before, the Lord instructed the saints to purchase land in Zion and seek legal, peaceful means to get back what they had lost. Zion shall not be moved out of her place, he declared. They that remain and are pure in heart shall return and come to their inheritances. While the revelation urged peaceful negotiations with the people of independence, the Lord also indicated that Zion could be reclaimed by power. He told a parable about a vineyard that had been taken from slothful servants and destroyed by an enemy. When the Lord of the vineyard saw the destruction, he chastised the servants for their negligence and called them to action. Go and gather together the residue of my servants, and take all the strength of mine house, he commanded. And go ye straightway unto the land of my vineyard, and redeem my vineyard. 
The Lord did not interpret the parable, but he told the saints that it reflected his will for the redemption of Zion. Two months later, Parley Pratt and Lyman White came to Kirtland with more news from Missouri. Friendly people across the river from Jackson County had given the saints food and clothes in exchange for labor, but they were still scattered and discouraged. They wanted to know when and how Zion would be rescued from its enemies. After hearing the report, Joseph rose from his chair and announced that he was going to Zion. For six months he had offered encouraging words and hope to the saints there as he dealt with other challenges in Kirtland. Now he wanted to do something for them, and he wanted to know who would join him. In April 1834, at a meeting of a small branch of the church in New York, 27-year-old Wilford Woodruff listened to Parley Pratt recount the Lord's latest revelation to Joseph Smith. It called on the saints to raise 500 men to march with the prophet to Missouri. The redemption of Zion must needs come by power, the Lord declared. Let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake. Parley invited the young and middle-aged men in the branch to go to Zion. Every man who could be spared was expected to go. At the end of the meeting, Wilfred introduced himself to Parley. He and his older brother Asmund had joined the church three months earlier, and both were teachers in the Aaronic priesthood. Wilford said he was willing to go to Zion, but he had bills to pay and accounts to collect before he could leave. Parley told him it was his duty to get his finances in order and join the march. Later, Wilford spoke to Asmund about going to Zion. Although the Lord had called on every able-bodied man in the church to join the march, Asmund decided to stay, reluctant to leave his home, family, and farm. But Wilford was unmarried, and he was eager to go to Zion with the prophet. Wilfred arrived in Kirtland a few weeks later and met Brigham Young and Heber Kimball, who had recently moved to Ohio with their families. Heber worked as a potter, and he and his wife Vilate had two children. Brigham was a carpenter with two small daughters. Recently, he had married a convert named Mary Ann Angel after his first wife Miriam had passed away. Both men were willing to join the march, despite the sacrifices their families would have to make. Marianne's cousins, Joseph and Chandler Holbrook, were also joining the march, along with their wives, Nancy and Eunice, and their young children. Nancy and Eunice planned to help the few other women in camp who would cook, wash clothes, and nurse the sick and wounded along the way to Missouri. Women who stayed home found other ways to support the march. Shortly before leaving for Zion, Joseph said, I want some money to help fit out Zion, and I know that I shall have it. The next day, he received $150 from a sister Vose in Boston. Wilford and a handful of saints left for Zion on May 1st. Joseph, Brigham, Heber, and the Holbrooks, along with about a hundred other volunteers, left Kirtland several days later and joined up with Wilford along the road. Once assembled, the force was only a small fraction of the 500 the Lord had called for, but they headed west in good spirits, determined to fulfill the Lord's word. Joseph had high hopes for his small band, which he called the Camp of Israel. Although they were armed and willing to fight, as the ancient Israelites had been when they battled for the land of Canaan, Joseph wanted to resolve the conflict peacefully. Government officials in Missouri had told church leaders there that Governor Dunklin was willing to send the state militia to accompany the saints back to their lost lands. He could not, however, promise to keep mobs from driving them out again. 
Joseph planned to request the governor's aid once the Camp of Israel arrived in Missouri, then work with the militia to return the saints to Jackson County. The camp would remain in Zion for a year to keep the saints safe from their enemies. To ensure that everyone in camp was provided for, camp members put their money in a general fund. Following Old Testament patterns, Joseph divided the men into companies, with each group electing a captain. As the camp of Israel moved farther west, Joseph worried about entering enemy territory with his small force. His brother Hiram and Lyman White had recruited additional men among the branches of the church northwest of Kirtland, but they had not yet joined up with the camp of Israel, and Joseph did not know where they were. He also worried that spies were watching the camp's movements and counting their numbers. On June 4th, after a month of marching, the camp reached the Mississippi River. Joseph was tired and sore from the journey, but he felt ready to confront the challenges that lay ahead. He learned that reports and rumors of the camp's movement had already reached Missouri, and hundreds of settlers were preparing for a fight. He wondered whether the saints were strong enough to face them. Camp is in as good a situation as could be expected, he wrote Emma while sitting on the riverbank, but our numbers and means are altogether too small. The next day was hot and muggy as the camp of Israel waited to cross the river into Missouri. The Mississippi was more than a mile wide, and the camp had only one boat to ferry them across. As they waited, some camp members hunted and fished, while others fought off boredom and looked for shade to escape the summer sun. The camp spent two tedious days crossing the river. By the end of the second day, they were tired and on edge. Now that they were in Missouri, many of them feared surprise attacks. That evening, Joseph's watchdog startled everyone when it began barking at the last company to arrive in camp. Sylvester Smith, the captain of the arriving company, threatened to kill the dog if it did not stop barking. Joseph calmed the animal, but Sylvester and his company were still complaining about it the next morning. Hearing their complaints, Joseph called camp members together. I will descend to the spirit that is in the camp, he announced, for I want to drive it from the camp. He started to mimic Sylvester's behavior from the night before, repeating the captain's threats against the dog. This spirit keeps up division and bloodshed throughout the world, he said. Sylvester, who was no relation to Joseph, was unamused. If that dog bites me, he said, I will kill him. If you kill that dog, Joseph said, I will whip you. If you do, said Sylvester, I shall defend myself. The camp watched the two men stare each other down. So far, no fights had broken out among them, but weeks of marching had frayed everyone's nerves. At last, Joseph turned away from Sylvester and asked the saints if they were as ashamed as he was of the feeling in the camp. He said they were acting like dogs rather than men. Men ought never to place themselves on a level with beasts, he said. They ought to be above it. The mood in camp settled down after that, and the small band trekked deeper into Missouri. Nancy and Eunice Holbrook stayed busy attending to their daily tasks, yet they understood that every step they took toward Jackson County placed them in more and more danger. Not long after the main body of the camp crossed the Mississippi, Hiram Smith and Lyman White arrived with their recruits, increasing the camp's numbers to more than 200 volunteers. Camp leaders were still worried about an attack, however, and Joseph told the men who had families with them to seek shelter for their wives and children. 
several women in camp objected to being left behind, but just as the men were about to leave, Joseph called everyone together. If the sisters are willing to undergo a siege with the camp, he said, they can all go along with it. Nancy, Eunice, and the other women in camp said they were willing to go, happy that Joseph let them choose to continue on the march. Several days later, Parley Pratt and Orson Hyde came to camp with unwelcome news. Governor Dunkland had refused to provide militia support for the saints. Without the governor's aid, the camp knew they would not be able to help the Missouri saints return to their land in Zion peacefully. Joseph and his captains decided to press on. They hoped to reach the exiled saints in Clay County, north of the Missouri River, and help them negotiate a compromise with the people of Jackson County. The camp of Israel cut across the central Missouri prairie. About a day's journey from their destination, a black woman, possibly a slave, called out to them nervously. There is a company of men here who are calculating to kill you this morning as you pass through, she said. The camp marched cautiously on. Plagued by wagon problems, they were forced to stop for the night on a hill overlooking a fork in the fishing river, still ten miles from the exiled saints. As they pitched their tents, they heard the rumbling of horse hoofs as five men rode into camp. The strangers brandished weapons and boasted that more than three hundred men were on their way to wipe the saints out. Alarm rippled through the camp of Israel. Knowing they were outnumbered, Joseph posted guards around the area, certain an attack was imminent. One man begged him to strike the mob first. No, Joseph said. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Overhead, the clouds looked heavy and gray. Twenty minutes later, hard rains tore through camp, driving the men from their tents as they scrambled to find better shelter. The banks of the fishing river disappeared as the water rose and surged downstream. Wind whipped through the camp, blowing down trees and upending tents. Bright lightning streaked the sky. Wilfred Woodruff and others in the camp found a small church nearby and huddled inside while hail pelted the roof. After a moment, Joseph burst into the church, shaking the water from his hat and clothes. "'Boys, there is some meaning to this,' he exclaimed. "'God is in this storm.'" Unable to sleep, the saints stretched out on the benches and sang hymns through the night. In the morning, they found their tents and gear soaked and scattered throughout camp, but nothing was damaged beyond repair and no attack had come. The rivers remained swollen, cutting the camp off from their enemies on the opposite bank. Over the next few days, the camp of Israel made contact with the saints in Clay County, while Joseph met with officials from surrounding counties to explain the purpose of the march and plead for the saints in Zion. We are anxious for a settlement of the difficulties existing between us, Joseph told them. We want to live in peace with all men, and equal rights is all we require. The officials agreed to help calm the anger of their fellow citizens, but they warned the camp not to go into Jackson County. If the saints tried to march into independence, a bloody battle could break out. The next day, June 22nd, in a council with church leaders, Joseph received a revelation for the camp of Israel. The Lord accepted the sacrifices of its members, but redirected their efforts to obtaining divine power. Zion cannot be built up, he declared, unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. 
The Lord told the saints that they should wait to redeem Zion until they had prepared themselves through learning and experience to do the will of God. And this cannot be brought to pass, he explained, until mine elders are endowed with power from on high. This endowment was to come in the Lord's house, the temple in Kirtland. The Lord was pleased, however, with those who had marched in the camp of Israel. I have heard their prayers and will accept their offering, he said, and it is expedient in me that they should be brought thus far for a trial of their faith. After they heard the revelation, some members of the camp accepted it as the word of the Lord. Others protested, feeling that it denied them a chance to do more for the Missouri saints. A few people were angry and ashamed that they had to return home without a fight. The camp disbanded soon after, and what little was left of its common fund was divided out to its members. Some people in camp planned to stay in Missouri to work and help the saints start over, while Brigham, Heber, and others readied themselves to return to their families, finish the temple, and prepare to receive the endowment of power. Although the camp had not redeemed Zion, Wilfred Woodruff was grateful for the knowledge he had gained on the march. He had traveled close to a thousand miles with the prophet and had seen him reveal the word of God. The experience left him wanting to preach the gospel. Wilford did not yet know if preaching was in his future, but he decided to stay in Missouri and do whatever the Lord required of him. Chapter 19 Stewards Over This Ministry as the camp of Israel disbanded, a devastating outbreak of cholera attacked its ranks. Saints who had been healthy only hours before collapsed, unable to move. They vomited again and again and suffered intense stomach pains. The cries of the sick filled the camp, and many men were too weak for guard duty. Nancy Holbrook was one of the first to get sick. Her sister-in-law Eunice soon joined her, overcome with excruciating muscle cramps. Wilford Woodruff spent much of the night and the next day tending to a sick man in his company. Joseph and the elders in camp gave blessings to the sick, but the disease soon struck many of them as well. Joseph fell ill after a few days and languished in his tent, unsure if he would survive. When people began to die, Heber Kimball, Brigham Young, and others wrapped the bodies in blankets and buried them along a nearby stream. The cholera ran its course after several days, clearing up in early July. By that time, more than sixty saints had fallen sick. Joseph recovered, as did Nancy, Eunice, and most people in the camp. But more than a dozen saints died during the outbreak, including Sidney Gilbert and Betsy Parrish, one of the few women in the camp. Joseph mourned for the victims and their families. The last person to die was Jesse Smith, his cousin. Joseph's own brush with death was a reminder of how easily his life could be taken from him. At twenty-eight years old, he was becoming more worried about completing his divine mission. If he died now, what would happen to the church? Was it strong enough to outlast him? Following the Lord's direction, Joseph had already made changes in church leadership to share the burdens of administration. By this time, Sidney Rigdon and Frederick Williams were serving with him in the presidency of the church. He had also designated Kirtland to be a stake of Zion, or an official gathering place for the saints. More recently, after receiving a vision of how Peter organized the Lord's Church anciently, Joseph had organized a high council of twelve high priests in Kirtland to help him govern the stake and lead it in his absence. 
Soon after the cholera subsided, Joseph organized the church further. Meeting with church leaders in Clay County in July 1834, he formed a high council in Missouri and appointed David Whitmer to preside over the church there with the help of two counselors, William Phelps and John Whitmer. He then set out for Kirtland, eager to finish the temple and obtain the endowment of power that would help the saints redeem Zion. Joseph knew major problems lay ahead. When he left Kirtland that spring, the temple's sandstone walls were four feet high, and the arrival of several skilled workers in town had given him hope that the saints would realize the Lord's plan for his house. But the losses in and around Independence, the printing office, the store, and many acres of land had hurt the saints financially. Joseph, Sidney, and other church leaders had also gone deeply into debt, taking out heavy loans to purchase land for the Kirtland Temple and finance the Camp of Israel. With church businesses stalled or struggling, and no reliable system for collecting donations from the saints, the church could not pay for the temple. If Joseph and the other leaders fell behind on their payments, they could lose the sacred building to creditors. And if they lost the temple, how could they receive the endowment of power and redeem Zion? Back in Kirtland, Sidney Rigdon shared Joseph's anxiety about finishing the temple. We should use every effort to accomplish this building by the time appointed, he told the saints. On it depends the salvation of the church and also of the world. Sidney had monitored the progress on the temple while Joseph was in Missouri. Lacking younger men to do the work, Artemis Millet, the superintendent of construction, had enlisted older men as well as women and children to work on the building. Many of the women took on jobs men usually filled, assisting the masons in driving wagons to and from the quarry site to haul stone for the temple. By the time Joseph and the Camp of Israel returned to Kirtland, the walls had risen several more feet above the foundation. The return of the camp spurred construction in the summer and fall of 1834. The saints quarried stone, hauled it to the temple lot, and built up the temple walls day by day. Joseph labored alongside workers as they cut stone blocks from a nearby creek. Some worked in the church's sawmill preparing lumber for beams, ceilings, and floors. Others helped lift wood and rock up the scaffolding to where it was needed. Emma and other women, meanwhile, made clothes for the workers and kept them fed. Valate Kimball, Heber's wife, spun 100 pounds of wool into thread, wove it into cloth, and sewed clothes for the workers, not keeping so much as an extra pair of stockings for herself. The saints' enthusiasm for completing the temple encouraged Sidney, but the church's debts were increasing by the day and having signed his name to many of the heaviest loans, he knew he would be financially ruined if the church failed to repay them. When he saw the poverty of the saints and the sacrifices they were making to finish the temple, Sidney also feared that they would never have the resources or resolve to complete it. Overcome with worry, he would sometimes climb on top of the temple walls and plead with God to send the saints the funds they needed to finish the temple. As he prayed, tears fell from his eyes to the stones beneath his feet. Five hundred miles northeast of Kirtland, 21-year-old Caroline Tippetts carefully stowed a large sum of money among the clothes and other items she was taking from New York to Missouri. She and her younger brother Harrison were moving west, hoping to settle somewhere near Jackson County. 
They had heard about the persecution of the saints there, but they wanted to obey the Lord's command to gather to Missouri and purchase land in Zion before enemies of the church snatched it up. The commandment had been part of the revelation Joseph received after he learned about the saints' expulsion from Zion. Purchase all the lands, it read, which can be purchased in Jackson County and the counties roundabout. The funds were to come by donation. Let all the churches gather together all their monies, the Lord directed, and let honorable men be appointed, even wise men, and send them to purchase these lands. When Caroline's branch leaders learned about the revelation, they called on the small group of saints to fast and pray for the Lord's help in collecting money to purchase land in Missouri. Some members of the branch gave large donations of cash and property to the fund. Others gave a few dollars. Caroline had about $250 she could place in the fund. It was more money than anyone else in the branch had donated, and probably more than anyone expected her to give, but she knew it would help the saints redeem the promised land. When she added her donation to the fund, the total came to about $850, a substantial amount of money. Following the meeting, Harrison and his cousin John were selected to travel to Missouri to purchase the land. Caroline decided to go with them and safeguard her share of the donation. After John settled some business and family members prepared a team and wagon for them, the three were ready to set out for Missouri. Climbing into the wagon, Caroline looked forward to starting a new life in the West. Since the Tippetses planned to stop at Kirtland along the way, their branch leaders gave them a letter of introduction to the prophet, explaining where their money came from and what they intended to do with it. All through the fall of 1834, Joseph and other church leaders slipped further and further behind in their payments on the temple land, and interest on the loans continued to accumulate. Some workers volunteered their time to labor on the temple, easing the church's financial burden somewhat. When families had extra cash or goods, they sometimes offered it to the church for the temple project. Other people, both inside and outside the church, extended credit, loaning money to keep construction moving forward. The donations and loans, in turn, paid for materials and allowed people who might have otherwise been unemployed to work. These efforts kept the temple walls rising higher, and in the final months of the year they were high enough for woodworkers to begin laying the beams for the upper floor. But money was always tight, and church leaders prayed constantly for more funds. In early December, the Tippetts family arrived in Kirtland, and Harrison and John delivered their branches' letter to the High Council. With winter almost upon them, they asked the Council if they should continue on to Missouri or spend the season in Kirtland. After some discussion, the High Council recommended that the family stay in Ohio until the spring. Desperate for funds, the Council also asked the young men to loan the church some money, promising to repay it before their spring departure. Harrison and John agreed to loan the church part of the $850 from their branch. Since a large portion of that money was Caroline's, the council called her into the meeting and explained the terms of the loan, which she willingly accepted. The next day, Joseph and Oliver rejoiced as they thanked the Lord for the financial relief the Tippetts family had brought. More loans and donations came to the church that winter, but Joseph knew they would still not be enough to cover the growing cost of the temple. Caroline Tippetts and her family had shown, however, that many saints in the far-flung branches of the church wanted to do their part in the work of the Lord. 
As a new year dawned, Joseph realized that he needed to find a way to strengthen these branches and seek their help in finishing the temple so the saints could be endowed with power. The solution came from a revelation Joseph had received several years earlier that commanded Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer to search out twelve apostles to preach the gospel to the world. Like the apostles in the New Testament, these men were to act as special witnesses of Christ, baptizing in His name and gathering converts to Zion and its branches. As a quorum, the twelve apostles were also to function as a traveling high council and minister to areas that fell outside the jurisdiction of the high councils in Ohio and Missouri. In this capacity, they could direct missionary work, oversee branches, and raise funds for Zion and the temple. One Sunday in early February, Joseph invited Brigham and Joseph Young to his home. I wish you to notify all the brethren living in the branches, within a reasonable distance from this place, to meet at a general conference on Saturday next, he told the brothers. At that conference, he explained, twelve men would be appointed to the new quorum. And you, Joseph said to Brigham, will be one of them. The next week, on February 14, 1835, the saints in Kirtland assembled for the conference. Under Joseph's direction, Oliver, David, and their fellow Book of Mormon witness Martin Harris announced the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Each of the men called had served preaching missions, and eight of them had marched in the camp of Israel. Thomas Marsh and David Patton, both in their mid-thirties, were the oldest of the twelve. Thomas was one of the earliest converts, having gained a testimony of the Book of Mormon while the first copies were still being printed. David had served mission after mission in the three years since his conversion. As Joseph had stated a week earlier, Brigham was also called to the quorum. So too was his best friend, Heber Kimball. Both men had served faithfully as captains in the camp of Israel. Now Brigham would again leave his carpenter's bench and Heber his potter's wheel to go on the Lord's errand. Like the New Testament apostles, Peter and Andrew and James and John, two pairs of brothers were called to the Twelve. Parley and Orson Pratt had spread the gospel to the East and the West and were now to dedicate themselves to serving the church branches everywhere. Luke and Lyman Johnson had preached to the South and the North and would go out again, now with apostolic authority. The Lord selected both the educated and the unschooled. Orson Hyde and William McClellan had taught in the School of the Prophets and brought their keen intellects to the quorum. Though only twenty-three years old, John Boynton had seen great success as a missionary and was the only one of the apostles who had attended a university. The Prophet's younger brother, William, did not have the same benefit of formal education, but he was a passionate speaker, fearless in the face of opposition, and quick to defend the needy. After calling the apostles, Oliver gave them a special charge. Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face, he told them. Strengthen your faith, cast off your doubts, your sins, and all your unbelief, and nothing can prevent you from coming to God. He promised them that they would preach the gospel in faraway nations and gather many of God's children to the safety of Zion. You will be stewards over this ministry, he testified. We have a work to do that no other men can do. You must proclaim the gospel in its simplicity and purity, and we commend you to God and the word of His grace. Two weeks after organizing the Twelve, Joseph formed another priesthood quorum to join the apostles in spreading the gospel, strengthening the branches, and collecting donations for the church. 
The members of this new quorum, called the Quorum of the Seventy, were all veterans of the camp of Israel. They were to travel far and wide, following the New Testament example of seventy disciples journeying two by two into every city to preach Jesus' word. The Lord selected seven men to preside over the quorum, including Joseph Young and Sylvester Smith, the company captain who had quarreled with the prophet during the march of the camp of Israel. With the help of the Kirtland High Council, the two men had resolved their differences that summer and made amends. Shortly after their call, the prophet spoke to the new quorums. Some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri, he said. But let me tell you, God did not want you to fight. Instead, Joseph explained, God had called them to Missouri to test their willingness to sacrifice and consecrate their lives to Zion, and to increase the power of their faith. He could not organize his kingdom with twelve men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth, and with seventy men under their direction to follow in their tracks, he taught, unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives and who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham.